Welcome back, unfuckers and subfuckers. What up to Dan the Man from Stony Brook, the place where my other brother, Kryn, hung his hat at the university. My girls, Stephanie in Massachusetts, the good people of Outagami County and Queen Nettie, Stadi in Michigan, Jacob the Swede, Trakusha the Canuck, Mbustama, old Bobby McDee in Ireland, B. Barnes, G. Knutson, Gudolf, P. Slippery, and Derek R. Before we get to today's episode, I'm pleased to reveal the results of this stupid white guy Olympic survey from last week's quickie. Honestly, I'm a bit surprised by the results, mostly because this guy didn't win. Thanks, Lawrence. It is America, the land of the home and, and freedom reigns. For now it is. The results from our judges are in and have been tabulated by Dominion. Rudy Giuliani has already filed a petition, so the results are, of course, preliminary. Our bronze medalist in the stupid white guy Olympics was awarded to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, the king of voter suppression. Our silver medalist in a hotly contested race is none other than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Which means our gold medal finalist in the stupid white guy Olympic trials, who will go on to represent the United States in this fictitious endeavor, is the pride of Texas, Governor Greg Abbott. How about a round of applause for each of our contestants who really worked their asses off to get to the podium? Max, it looks like we have a controversy brewing. Georgia Governor Kemp appears to be protesting the national anthem. This is going to confuse a lot of people in... in oh, oh, no, wait, my bad. He's just facing the wrong way. Never mind. That was exciting. Whew. We actually had a ton of submissions for this contest at unftr.com last week, so thank you to everyone who participated. We also had a slew of positive comments about our unfucking line of coffee. The Unfuck Your Afternoon blend is leading the way by a pretty healthy margin, and it's the one that is brewing at my house pretty much around the clock because I clearly have a caffeine addiction. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a full explanation on our website, unftr.com. Long story short, instead of asking listeners to support us blindly, we established a partnership with a native coffee company on a reservation in New York. So, purchasing our unfucking coffee not only supports the show, it supports economic development for the Uncachog people of Puspatuck. One note to listeners who purchase t-shirts, they're finally in, and we've just shipped them all, so thank you for your patience. We actually sold out of our first batch, so congrats, and thank you to all who ordered a t-shirt. Surely, these are a collector's item. <laughs> collector's item. Easy, killer. You're not exactly Ben Shapiro. Uh, why do you hurt me, Manny? Why? We're back to business today with an episode that has been in the works for several months. It's all about a concept called Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT. It was on the board for a while, but I kept punting on it because I felt it was necessary for us to walk an economic path together to really set it up. So again, if you're just plugging into our little thing here, this episode should stand on its own and give you a decent understanding of MMT without listening to prior episodes. But in so much as this is somewhat of a culmination of past topics, it'll probably make more sense with a few of those ones under your belt. Not that I want you to stop listening right now and go back, but if you're a regular, I think this will codify many of the theories that we've unpacked previously. So in order, the episodes that serve as primers for today are Priorities, War, Wealth, and Welfare, Capitalism, The Beatification of Ronald Reagan, America Inc., Copyright 2021, Stimulate This Biatch, and of course, Buck Milton Friedman. I know it's not a universal platform, but we'll include this on a playlist on Spotify for any and all economic wonks out there. 
It's funny because I distinctly remember in the first one, Priorities, War, Wealth, and Welfare, removing any reference to MMT, even though it too was basically an MMT episode. And the reason I stopped short of naming it in this and prior episodes is that MMT makes people uncomfortable. Some people even get angry. It's basically a fuck you to established economic theories and to the budget hawks that have ruled central banks and governments for more than a century. Truth is, it's not all that revolutionary, but the mere mention of it can color one's view on the subject. I liken it to the defund the police movement. No matter how sound the argument behind it or the intent, a significant block of the population will immediately sour at the idea because of the nature of the name and associated philosophy. See, in economic circles, MMT has kind of a similar effect. While it's not widely known outside of academia and policy circles, though it's certainly gaining momentum due to the tireless efforts of superstar economist Stephanie Kelton, what it teaches us and what it portends to our daily lives cannot be overstated or oversold. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. So today, I'm proposing a plan for the nation that rewards work, not just rewards wealth. It builds a fair economy that gives everybody a chance to succeed, and it's going to create the strongest, most resilient, innovative economy in the world. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done, since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. I'm going to give you our Pito Tuyo segment up top as a way to set the table for this week's episode. As of this recording, the House passed a $700 billion infrastructure bill that's headed for the Senate with a number of earmarks. Interesting, by the way, that these are back, but that's for another day. It's to complete specific projects split pretty nicely among Democrat and Republican districts. The bill's targeted mostly towards transportation and water infrastructure, which is certainly fine and necessary, but the really ambitious stuff will come down the road in bigger reconciliation bills designed to subvert the filibuster. This should be fairly easy to do in theory, given this is all spending, a requirement for reconciliation, but it doesn't mean that it's going to breeze through the Senate as there are rogue Democrats who believe in a balanced budget and will likely balk at anything with a trillion-dollar price tag. When all is said and done, even the full scope of the $6 trillion that Biden and company are looking to appropriate this year is less than what is required to build out an infrastructure that tackles the existential climate crisis, connectivity needs for rural and impoverished areas of the country, a fully modernized and efficient grid system, and bulletproof physical infrastructure upgrades that have been ignored for literally 50 years. The reason it's taken so long to address, the reason there will be pushback on additional spending beyond this initial pedotuyu bill of $700 billion, and the reason we live in the wealthiest nation in history and can't muster the political will to offer universal health care and free public university education, we have a crumbling infrastructure and live under the constant threat of social safety net insolvency, is that we're living under old economic thinking. Now here's the moment that our thinking should have changed. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. So notice that I said our thinking should have changed at this moment. 
The concepts behind MMT were valid prior to this moment, but when Nixon pulled us off the gold standard and allowed currency to float, he essentially unshackled money on a wholesale basis. The immediate aftermath was pure chaos as he compounded this incredible moment by adding punitive tariffs on imports and sent the world scrambling to align with the new economic order prescribed by the United States. Now, before we get here, let's go back a bit and talk about what the world order actually looked like. Unfuckers who have been closely tuned to our previous episodes might think I'm a bit schizophrenic as I have excoriated the recklessness of prior administrations for their handling of economic affairs. We've taken Reagan to task for tax cuts, called out Bush for liquidating the budget surplus on the eve of two multi-trillion dollar wars, and most recently referred to the Trump years as the most economically irresponsible in modern history. Now, I stand by every one of these accusations, but with one massive caveat. These were wildly irresponsible actions given the prism of old economic thinking. Actions that should have fucked us 10 times over and signaled the end of the Republican Party at a minimum. We should have gone broke. Our currency should be toilet paper. Instead, the Republic carried on. And Republicans unwittingly unmasked the biggest flaw in economic thinking, then covered their tracks by doubling down on the false logic of balanced budgets. Okay, you better start explaining this MMT shit because you're not making any sense here, brother. Ah, uh, you're right. That's why it took me so long to get here. Essentially, MMT posits the idea that any government that issues its own currency can run extraordinary deficits to finance basically anything without fear of negative monetary or fiscal consequences. Now, to wrap your head around MMT, you have to unlearn almost everything we've been told about monetary theory, balanced budgets, national debt, and budget deficits. Everything that you know about money and how the government operates. Here's conventional theory. The government should operate like a household. We talked about this in the priorities episode. It shouldn't. If you tax the wealthy, it stifles growth, investment, and incentives. We covered this under Reagan. It doesn't. Too much stimulus spending will overheat the economy and lead to hyperinflation. Check out our Stimulate This Biatch episode. It hasn't. Government should stay out of the private sector. The country should operate like a business. Listen to Fuck Milton Friedman, the Chicago School of Economics. It shouldn't. We're saddling our children and grandchildren with debt. Literally everyone on every news channel ever. We're not. These are the conventions of economics that have been drilled into us. But what if it's not true? That's what MMT challenges us to think. So let's break it down. Our main source of inspiration is a book called The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. As I said, she's sort of the spiritual leader of the MMT movement right now, and in large part because of this book. It's smart, yet accessible, and it offers readers a solid entry point into macroeconomics. And what I appreciate the most about it is how she skillfully breaks down each convention by making them relatable and placing them in context. But we're also drawing upon the work that we've done in prior episodes, the theories of John Maynard Keynes, Bernard Harcourt's concepts of the illusory free markets and more. The first and most important concept is this notion that the government operates like a household. So let's talk about that. Out of its total weekly income, Jack's family allows so much for food, household, clothing, each part of their regular expenses is allowed for in the budget. In our priorities episode, we broke down the federal budget into distinct parts and correlated them with a household budget to illustrate how the government spends its money. Now, the purpose wasn't to demonstrate whether or not we were responsible or reckless as a nation, but to explain it in terms that we can relate to. It was clear that if the government was a household, it would be the strangest fucking household on the planet. 
If a household spends more than it earns, it has to take on debt, something that plagues most Americans. In fact, the average household debt in the United States is upwards of $90,000, including mortgages, credit cards, and student loans. And 35% of us don't even own a home. Between half and three quarters of a million Americans file bankruptcy every year as a result of their debt burden. Per capita, we're second in the world in this measure. Yay for us. So when a household gets over its skis and can't pay its debt, it goes bankrupt. Boom, done. But the United States government never seems to. Last year, we ran a $4 trillion deficit. And guess what? Investors still purchased our treasuries, inflation didn't run amok, and we're not burning $20 bills to heat our homes. Why? Because the United States isn't a household. Now, some people will point to the crises in other countries as a danger in running up massive debts and deficits. The Greek crisis was one of the most popular examples of this, but the one difference between us and the Greeks, aside from Souvlaki, is the ability to print more money. When Greece dropped the drachma and joined the EU currency family, it lost the ability to control the amount of money in circulation, and they were subsequently subjected to austerity measures from European central banks that only worsened their situation. To clarify the household example, Kelton takes great pains to explain the difference between being a currency user and a currency issuer. You, me, your home, your business, even local and state governments in the US were all currency users. We can't print money, and when we take on too much debt and lose the ability to service it, we go broke. But the federal government can, and it does, so it won't. So why doesn't every country do it? Well, that's another story, and we'll get there in a minute. But for our purposes right now, the government's in control of their own currencies that are big enough and stable enough to manage massive deficits are the United States, Japan, the UK, Australia, and Canada. Those are the largest and most notable, with the US leading the pack as 90% of all global transactions are settled in US dollars. And we'll get there too. So let's talk about money. What the fuck is money anyway if certain countries can just make it up? Well, it's a good question. Money is simply a way to settle an obligation, first and foremost. Goods, services, food, gasoline, whatever. We all need it to get by in the world. A government that prints its own money, on the other hand, doesn't really need to settle obligations with anyone in this specific way. It seems like it does because it taxes us for what it calls revenue. But think about the order of things for a second. If money in the form of taxes was required for the government to do things, it would need it before, not after it does a thing. Now, I know this sounds weird, but follow me for a second. If the government builds a highway or a tanker or a space program, it doesn't ask you for the money first. It spends the money then it refills theoretical coffers by taking money back from you. But it's not like they ever take the full dollar amount dollar for dollar. They don't need your money to build these things in the first place because they print the fucking money. So it's really about what the money is worth. In theory, as long as money holds its value and the value of it is accepted, milk costs X, cocaine costs Y, then it can be used to settle an obligation. The value of a government good or service, or even something that you buy or rent in your own life, isn't dependent upon whether the government has a deficit or a surplus. They're completely disconnected. So it's about the intrinsic value of this money and our collective belief in its purchasing power. The real price of something in the economy is determined by the value we place on it, the availability of it, and the agreed-upon settlement value. State and local governments are currency users like the rest of us and must therefore follow household rules of balanced budgets. 
countries that gave up their sovereign currencies, like the ones in the European Union or others that lack the intrinsic financial wherewithal to settle obligations with security, aren't as fortunate. So the logical next question, if you live in a sovereign currency nation like Canada, Japan, or the United States is, why the fuck do I even have to pay taxes? The answer is, from a federal perspective, that you really don't. Now remember, I'm not talking about property taxes, sales taxes, or park and recreation fees, the taxes that all of us have to pay. I'm talking about federal income taxes and deductions like Social Security. The federal government technically doesn't need that money to settle its obligations if its currency is stable. State and local governments do. Taxes have more of a societal impact than a budgetary impact. For example, they can discourage negative behavior or encourage positive behavior. Alleviate the concentration of wealth in a few hands that have the ability to sway the political process. More importantly, where managing the economy is concerned, there's a limit to what we can accumulate as citizens, but it has less to do with federal debt than it does with the one thing that can derail unlimited money supply in an economy. The I-word. Idiot. Ignorant. Imbecile. Incontinent. No. Inflation. I'm so bored. Bored, bored, bored. Do you want to see my face ooze black ink again? You love that. No, Rudy. Even your oozing face can't cheer me up this time. What about a party? We can get everyone together to plan an uprising. That was fun. That was fun. You know what? Let's do it. I'll get your Rolodex. <phone rings> Bobert, it's Donald. I know, I miss you too. I'm here with Rudy. We're planning. Yes, his face is oozing. I know, it's disgusting. Anyway, dinner tonight, Mar-a-Lago. We're planning another uprising. Great, see you then. Uh, hello? Gatesy boy, Donald, are you busy? Uh, <laughs> I'm in a candy store. Gross. Listen, 8 p.m., Mar-a-Lago. It's on like Donkey Kong. Wait, will there be checks? Mm, probably Ivanka, but she's mine. Junior's wife, Kimberly, and my other daughter. Uh, starts with a T. Not important. Uh, <laughs> do they have any kids? Hello, precious. Never mind. It answers the phone again. Your wife is still ugly. Ooh, ooh, let me see who I can get. I will consume your soul, Rudy. I can smell your fear. You idiot. Why would you call Hillary? Sorry. Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay and straight. Shit. Why do I even have his number? <coughs> Goatman, it's your leader, Donald. Thinking about storming the Capitol again. <coughs> Honestly, I don't understand a fucking word this guy says. Whatever. Mar-a-Lago, 8 p.m. Tell him you're a guest of Rudy's. Hello? My man, Mikey. It's the Donald. I'm so happy you called. I'm just finishing up a rally. Pillows for everyone. You want to say hi to the crowd? No time for that. Listen, we're planning another riot. Mar-a-Lago, tonight. Can't wait. By any chance, will there be crack cocaine on hand? I'm a little tight right now. Ah, 
only the best people. As we discussed in the Fuck Milton Friedman episode, the 70s really did a number on us psychologically. The rapid rise in inflation created panic. I mean, real panic based on real pain at the pumps and the supermarket, prices of all important daily necessities. Deficit became the boogeyman from this era instead of the real issues behind inflation, notably the oil crisis and the impact of Nixon's tariffs finally presenting themselves during a recession. Deficits and debt causes inflation was the mantra that stuck, and we've been living with this concept ever since. But even before this time, because the nations of the world were tied to the gold standard, which meant that there was a finite amount of currency that could theoretically be in circulation, debt was a critical monetary issue. In other words, it was possible that a country could run out of gold reserves based upon their level of debt. Recall also from the Milton episode that Keynes was desperately trying to obtain financing from the United States in both world wars because the UK was dangerously close to running out of gold. It needed to finance beyond its ability to sell against its reserves, and this came at a high price from the United States at the time. So there was a financial imperative prior to the Bretton Woods Agreement that finally weaned the world off of the gold standard and pegged the US dollar to gold, thereby allowing currencies to float on top and borrow more against it. This was the main idea behind Keynesian economics. Manage an efficient budget when employment was high, obligations were being met, and currency was stable. Print more money and run deficits when the economy turns, as it inevitably does under capitalism, because the extension of money supply won't affect the value of currency so long as the government has the ability to expand the money supply to meet its obligations. When Nixon ripped off the bandage and allowed the U.S. dollar to float freely, only the United States was prepared for it and in a position to benefit. But still, the myth that deficits and debt would cripple the economy, saddle future generations with debt and cause hyperinflation, persisted irrespective of who was in charge. My fellow Americans, today I want to ask you a question. Will you help me to reduce the federal budget deficit and then balance the budget once and for all? For the last decade, we've spent more money than we take in. In the year 2000, the government had a budget surplus. But instead of using it to pay off our debt, the money was spent on trillions of dollars in new tax cuts, while two wars and an expensive prescription drug program were simply added to our nation's credit card. Think about it this way. Bretton Woods formally ended in 1973, proposed in 72, done by 73. The ensuing chaos then lasted about seven years due to the oil crisis, tariffs, and the rest of the world coming to terms with the new world currency order. Since that time, over the past 40 years, the average inflation rate in the United States is 2.9%, and that even includes two years of double-digit inflation in 80 and 81. During the same time, we had six recessions, nine technical stock market crashes, and only four years of a budget surplus. Tonight at midnight, America puts an end to three decades of deficits and launches a new era of balanced budgets and surpluses. And through all of these events, nothing impacted inflation. Nothing. Democrats are as much to blame for not understanding the relationship between money supply and fiscal policy. For all the posturing around tax and spend Democrats and fiscal conservative Republicans, both parties have been prone to running up extraordinary deficits to pay for their pet projects, whether it's Republicans giving tax breaks to the rich or Democrats wanting to shore up entitlement programs. But both are built on false premises and both parties are either lying or woefully misinformed about the nature of taxation and spending. 
Isn't that right, Professor Rick Wolf? So modern monetary theory reaches a conclusion that we are much more able to manage capitalism's ups and downs by understanding how money works than we thought we were. And the excuse for conservatives not to use money to keep us at full employment has been given a heavy blow and the kind of liberal Keynesian better management approach has been given a big assist by this new understanding of how money works. One of the most diseased ideas that is pervasive among both parties is the idea that statistical full employment is actually not full employment. Economists refer to this as, quote, slack in the labor market, that it's technically impossible to have full employment in ordinary times or basically when we're not at war, and that full employment in this way is technically undesirable because there would be too much money circulating that a healthy economy requires there be just enough people unemployed to maintain a level of demand competitiveness to prevent wages from going too high and causing inflation. Now, there's a bit of logic to this, but mostly it's a monstrous philosophy that we take as gospel. As Kelton says, it's easier to blame immigrant workers, foreign currency manipulators, or even global technology than to come to terms with the fact that joblessness is an official policy in the United States. So what she's saying here is that the Federal Reserve will use its toolkit to try and maintain a level of acceptable unemployment to prevent the economy from running hot and causing inflation. This artificially maintains a level of unemployment that leaves Americans in the precarious position of hoping a favorable political climate leans towards offering reasonable unemployment benefits. And if it doesn't, you're fucked. MMT's proposal to mitigate the natural slowdowns that occur in capitalism as we move through cycles is a form of national labor force that can be put to work in a downturn. Kelton calls it a 21st century civilian conservation corp style concept that puts out of work labor to work on public works projects that can be governed and managed by local municipalities that have a greater understanding of community needs and shovel ready projects. One of the historical facts, a fucking fact, is that a significant percentage of the workforce will experience unemployment at some point in their working lives, and the vast majority don't remain on the rolls permanently. They move off after only a few months. Don't think it'll work? Well, dig this. Argentina launched a similar initiative to put unemployed people to work in federally funded, locally administered programs starting in 2001. As Kelton writes, quote, at its peak, the program employed some 2 million people, about 13% of the labor force. Almost 90% of the jobs were in community projects, and 75% of the participants were women. Just six months after launching the program, extreme poverty had fallen by 25%. Within three years, half of the participants had left the program, most for jobs in the private sector, end quote. Excellent! But the prevailing wisdom in the United States is that unemployment helps keep down inflation, welfare of any kind is evil, and we can't spend on things like healthcare and education, only war, destruction, and sending people to the fucking moon. Why? Because human shitbags like Larry Summers preach this bullshit and warn against people having jobs and healthcare and quality of life because it's dangerous, expensive, and will lead to inflation. But this uh, modern monetary theory idea where we can guarantee jobs for everybody or have Medicare for all and just rely on money printing to finance it. I think that's quite a dangerous uh, approach and I'm sorry to see that it's gaining more adherence. This fuckhole was the one who put a governor cap on Obama's stimulus, 
which did help stave off a depression, but also ensured that the recovery would be painful and protracted. Now, he's not alone in his thinking here as almost every major economist, every federal elected official, and every titan of finance on Wall Street sings the same fucking tune. Unless, of course, it's in the so-called national interest of defense or competitiveness. To be sure, all this costs us all a good deal of money. This year's space budget is three times what it was in January 1961, and it is greater than the space budget of the previous eight years combined. That budget now stands at $5,400,000,000 a year, a staggering sum, though somewhat less than we pay for cigarettes and cigars every year. When it was clear we were losing the space race to the Russians, Kennedy asked the United States Congress to open the purse strings to win the race. When we decided to retaliate against the 9-11 attackers and go to war, George W. Bush asked Congress to open the purse strings to defend the nation against two countries that literally had nothing to do with 9-11. When Wall Street fucked the entire country over with reckless behavior in 2008, Obama went to Congress to open up the purse strings and help Americans recover from the financial crisis. Will you listen to me? This is like the end of capitalism. This is like the dark ages all over again. And when the pandemic hit and the country came to a standstill, President Orange von Fucknugget appealed to Congress to open the purse strings once again and help businesses and Americans get by. And now Sleepy Joe is doing the same. And the one fucking constant in all of this that no one wants to talk about is the fact that nothing happened to inflation or the value of the dollar. Are we experiencing an uptick in inflation right now? Sure. But only as compared to last year when the world was fucking shut down and because inventory levels have yet to recover because we're still in the early innings of a recovery. When the wealthy got historic tax cuts under Bush, re-upped by Obama, and then cut further under Fucknugget, the debt exploded and nothing fucking happened. Why? because those dollars aren't fucking real. That's the ha-ha of this whole thing and the heart of MMT. Inflation occurs when dollars are coursing through the system and put to work to purchase goods and services that are finite. Give tax breaks to the wealthy, they just save it. They don't spend it, they hold it. Finance war in the defense industry makes a shit ton, but it doesn't change the price of fucking bread. Blow up the budget by sending people to the fucking moon, which is a ludicrous fucking idea in the first place when people are literally starving. And it doesn't increase the price of housing or wheat or lumber or anything because it's new money that is of no consequence to supply and demand consumer items. Now, once again, the inevitable question that unfuckers will likely return to is why the fuck do we collect taxes at all? And on this, I point you to our two-parter on corporate irresponsibility. Now, you're going to hate this, I know it, but trust me, it will be helpful information to you in a minute. I don't give a fuck if the rich are taxed or not. For practical economic purposes, it doesn't fucking matter because the government doesn't need the money. Do I think they should be taxed at a higher progressive rate? Yeah, because it helps even the playing field and reduces the tension that comes from inequality. It's just the fairness doctrine. We can't turn into a nation of servants to the wealthy. It reduces incentives to innovate and be competitive. But more than that, it works hand in hand with the fact that we've already allowed for a system where the wealthy can simply purchase political power and legislation. That's the most unhealthy aspect of allowing such preposterous accumulation of wealth. But to be clear, with respect to MMT, 
taxing the wealthy doesn't change anything in terms of our ability to run the country, settle transactions and debt obligations, and take care of the poor and working class in the United States. This is where progressives are getting it 100% wrong in their tax the rich stance. This idea will never fly in America for the sole reason that each and every one of us, whether you want to admit it or not, carries within us a fantasy or belief that we too will one day be wealthy and that it's a uniquely American right to possess it, flaunt it, and roll around in it. In terms of the rest of us, it's not just the millionaires and billionaires. There's a practical reason to maintain a minimum requirement of taxation, and indeed, it has to do with money supply and inflation. If we're all awash in cash, as normal people, we'll act on an impulse to spend on goods and services that will heat up the economy. So in this respect, there's a balance. And it's where the Federal Reserve has the ability to manage interest rate expectations or encourage or discourage savings and investment, and the Treasury has the incentive to cool things off lest we all purchase seven cars. But for us not to have our basic needs met in terms of healthcare and education, things that have no finite supply but possess infinite social upside is fucking absurd and mean and stupid. Where taxation matters more, in my humble opinion, is on large and multinational corporations. If we can't get money out of politics, then take money away from the entities that produce wealth and close down provisions that enable them to hide this wealth offshore. Again, I refer you to our corporate irresponsibility episodes. Taxing corporations at a higher level does a couple of things. One is that it incentivizes higher compensation because companies would rather pay people than the government. Great. Two is that it also allows us to impact behavior and incentivize healthier and more productive outcomes. And three, it encourages research and development, which helps foster a culture of innovation. If you know that profits are taxed at a higher rate, then you want to increase your piece of the pie. And the only way to do that is to keep the money working for you in-house, and the way to do that is through R&D. This isn't a groundbreaking concept, mind you. It's how we built the United States during the greatest period of innovation and economic development in history. But won't we saddle future generations with all this debt and go broke? As you know, we've inherited quite a budget crunch from President Trump. How bad is it, Secretary Van Houten? We're broke. The country is broke? How can that be? Well, remember when the last administration decided to invest in our nation's children? Big mistake. That's not a thing, because guess what? We have the money to retire all of the debt either by stopping the production of treasuries in the markets over time or simply pressing a button at the Federal Reserve and wiping it from our balance sheet. Seems stupid, but remember that these are just accounting mechanisms, moving balances from one side of our ledger to another. It's not actually real. It seems in today's world, the power to absolve debt is greater than the power of forgiveness. Not to mention, we're nowhere even fucking close to the indebtedness of other currency sovereign nations like Japan, for example. Right now, as ridiculously high as our debt is at 107% to GDP, it's two and a half times less than Japan's debt to GDP ratio. And still, once again, neither of us is experiencing rapid inflation, deflation, stagflation, or currency devaluation. And in Japan, oh, by the fucking way, the highest unemployment rate they've ever had is 5.5%, and they only got there twice in 70 years. Oh, and they have universal health care, and unemployment insurance, and wage-closing stipends for any household that falls below the poverty line. 
sovereign currency nations around the world are awakening to the reality that is modern monetary theory. Canada's finally beginning to have these discussions. Japan and China already know what's up. The UK, on the other hand, is going in the opposite direction because they're still recovering from the Brexit hangover and governed by their own frumpy von Fucknugget. Hopefully they come to their senses soon. If they don't, who cares? The pandemic sealed the deal. It proved the concept. Currency sovereign nations flooded the systems with money and the increase in monetary supply barely impacted inflation because the velocity of money coursing through the system didn't match the supply. Now, did certain raw materials like lumber and finished goods like automobiles go through the roof? Sure, because of specific elements of demand and the interruption along the supply chain. Lumber was difficult to move and the demand was enormous from people looking to complete home remodeling projects. Automobile demand skyrocketed because people stopped taking mass transit. Now, as the economy heats up and people get back to business and leisure, we'll see a small spike in inflation, but it will calm down as we head out of the summer months and completely normalize. It's the other countries that are fucked and will need sovereign currency nations to stay strong so we can purchase their goods and services. They're entirely reliant upon our success and the ability of our consumer class to purchase their exports. So when you think about globalism, don't just think about what's leaving our balance sheet or coming into our balance sheet. It's a global balance sheet and we're all managing it together. See, they gave up the right to control their currency destiny and have to hope that we get our poop in a group to build a more resilient global economy that can take care of the world's population and slow the disastrous consequences of climate change. Couple of final points for unfuckers and subfuckers on MMT. First, this is not an exhaustive examination of its principles, just the most pertinent to the line of thinking that we've been encouraging in our little pod world experiment thus far. There are deeper and wonkier places to take the MMT discussion, such as trade wars and deficits and social security. So I really do encourage you to check out The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton to dive deeper down the MMT rabbit hole. We've posted it on our bookshop.org account, so click on it in show notes to buy it there and support a local bookstore instead of fucking Jeff Bezos. I also want to call back our Pito Tuiu moment where we kick things off today. This infrastructure debate is a fucking joke. As Kelton notes, prior to the pandemic and talk of Biden's infrastructure bill, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave a D-plus grade to America's infrastructure. They estimated it will take $4.59 trillion over a 10-year period to get it up to appropriate standards, again, pre-pandemic. So to be clear, this initial plan at $700 billion takes a small bite out of it, but it spends just as much money on new energy infrastructure like charging stations, which is valid, but not what the civil engineers are referring to, as it does on shoring up our physical infrastructure. So even if Biden is successful at getting through the entirety of his plan, which is highly fucking unlikely because of people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, it's just slightly above what is supposedly needed to get to, quote, appropriate standards. So when you hear progressives like Bernie and AOC say, great start, not enough, they're not being difficult. They're fucking right. And so that's our Tyson principle for today. It's pretty basic, really. The only people in the country talking about pressing an agenda to create a public works program to lean into what Kelton calls a, quote, care economy are progressives. And she goes on to say that, quote, the benefits of a federal job guarantee not only include the production of goods, services and income. The guarantee also features on the job training and skill development, poverty alleviation, community building and social networking, social, political and economic stability and social multipliers. Now, I know this feels rudimentary to unfuckers, but the imperative here is to borrow from the conservative playbook to stack the congressional deck with progressives. So how do you do that? 
you mobilize in your individual community around a fresh progressive candidate in a primary against an establishment Democrat. Get involved, become a committee person, learn the talking points of the establishment Democrats, weasel your way in on the inside, and then use all of your resources locally, in your home, among your friends, with anybody that you know, to back the progressive candidate. This is what conservatives have done to us literally for decades. If a Republican falls out of line, conservatives are there to primary their own people to make sure that they have the most extreme agenda possible. But we don't do it out of this middle of the road fear, which ultimately gave us Biden. Avoid this, get involved locally. And I'm not talking about city council races. I'm not talking about your local legislatures. The business of business in local government is going to go on as it always has. That's where the real rough stuff goes on. That there are only 435 congressional seats that we have to worry about. And every one of the unfuckers and subfuckers has a responsibility if you buy into these theories to make it happen in your individual district. Progressives are the only people reading and understanding concepts like MMT, the only ones who understand that our debt can be managed with a keystroke at the Fed, the issuance of currency to retire outstanding debt, or the gradual decrease in treasury sales over time. They're the only ones that grasp that Japan's 240% debt to GDP ratio had zero impact on inflation because it too is a sovereign currency nation. If you want to take our country back, the Tyson principle is get a mitt and get in the game. Now, to bring it back to our Trump episode as well for a minute, where we offer tips on how to speak to a Trump supporter to gain their trust and shift the narrative away from us versus us to us versus the money class, try not to get caught up in the tax the rich argument because you won't change anyone's mind. Tax the multinational corporations and show how it will help both the rich and the working class as we build a more competitive economy that can adapt more effectively to combat the effects of climate change. Understand from MMT that taxation doesn't actually pay for anything. It's why rules like PAYGO and the Bird Rule in the Senate were meaningless and destructive. The government doesn't need our tax money to fund its initiatives. If it did, we would have bankrupt the country 10 times over already, paying for fucking moon landings and war. Taxation levels the playing field in terms of inequality and prevents uber wealthy people from buying the political process. But going after individuals instead of corporations is a losing strategy. Now, these ideas have been around for quite some time. In fact, economists like Paul Krugman are almost insulted and annoyed by the simplicity of it because they know fiscal Keynesian policy, even to the extreme, to support spending on beneficial goods and services with infinite need and supply like healthcare, infrastructure, broadband, don't cause inflationary pressures, and that a sovereign currency nation has the ability, therefore, to pay down these debts. MMT is the nail in Milton Friedman's coffin and marks a shift away from the balanced budget and debt trap that has guided public policy forever. If we can pay to destroy the planet and its inhabitants through tax breaks on fossil fuel companies, maintaining 800 military bases and spending nearly 800 fucking billion dollars per year on our war machine, then we can pay for health care, eliminate extreme poverty and ensure that no child is homeless or food insecure in this, the wealthiest, currency-sovereign, and misguided nation that ever existed. FMF, FRM, MMT. Here endeth the lesson.
It's show notes time. The show notes. Calling out listeners one by one. Show notes. Bloopers and thank yous. It's so much fun. Jenny Weiler bought us five coffees and said, love the show. Any chance you can include whole bean coffee in your coffee offerings? Dr. Jenny. Hey, Dr. Jenny, absolutely. We're just making sure that we don't fuck anything up right now. And then as we grow, the native roasters have told us that they are ready, willing, and able to fulfill this demand. So hang tight. Let us just get a hold of this thing. Uh, My girl D. Levin said, I am a bottomless pit of desire. Your show is like crack. D. Levin, you're like crack to us, baby. So just keep it going on. Subtlety also bought us five coffees and said, hanging on every word. Heenan H. bought 10 coffees and said, thanks for all you do. Hashtag FMF and hashtag fuck Reagan. Indeed, Keenan. Fucking old man bought five coffees and said, just what I needed. When you stop learning, you start dying. More, please. On Facebook, Steve D., Jacob J., Rick R., and Tyler M. all had a lot to say. Uh, Jacob J. wants us to ship coffee to Sweden. Uh, Jacob, we're just trying to get it to Canada right now, so I don't think Sweden's going to happen, my man, but, uh, you know, someday. Steve D. wants Nespresso pods. I don't think we can do that, uh, but thank you for the support of the show. Rick R. came to us from uh, Young Turks and David Pakman. You know, Rick R. is pretty super informed and said hashtag FMF. Now, Tyler said a lot of stuff, and a lot of it was really good about uh, working class and union issues. And we're going to get to a lot of that, so I'll be addressing Tyler directly as we get to our union episode. Uh, and he closed out with, fuck Milton Friedman, fuck Rupert Murdoch, fuck Ronald Reagan, and oh, fuck the Keystone Pipeline too. How fucked was that disaster? Maybe in the Trudeau episode, mention that. Anyway, buy union and keep unfucking this republic, my friend. Will do. On Twitters, Crazy Wusson, Randomizer, Afandre and Midwest Monster were all like saying some shit. And uh, uh, I'm going to highlight just one uh, quick thing. Oh, uh, Randomizers up in uh, America's Attic, up in Canada. Uh, We've got our Canadian episode coming too. And by the way, for all of my Canuck friends, uh, we've got a little bit of a a surprise coming for that show that we're kind of excited about. But more on that to come, eh? In the Midwest Monster said, uh, do me a favor and blow the lid off Ohio. What the fuck's going on in Ohio, man? I don't know, but the Midwest Monster wants us to, quote, cut it open like Hawkeye and Honeycutt. Okay, listen, we'll figure out what the fuck's going on in Ohio. Ah, okay, Embustama. Embustama is a is a really, really, first of all, passionate and loyal listener, but also really, really smart and gives us a lot of good feedback, and we have a, a good back and forth. And I neglected to actually get back to you after the last episode, but Embustama's kind of disturbed by the Trump episode, especially after we called Obama the best Republican president and said Trump kept his promises. And Bustam is going to go back and listen to that episode again. He said, I promise to listen again, but you're really pushing some hardcore mental exercise here. I totally dig it. Uh, And Embustama, I could tell you, I was uncomfortable putting that episode together. But the general theory of it was to say, yes, he did keep his promises. His promises were shitty, but he kept them. And that's kind of the point, because when you look at it strictly through the Newsmax Fox News lens and they're just doubling down through this echo chamber saying he kept his promises, he did the things that he said he was going to do in large measure on the big stuff. He kind of did. He just created such fuckery and, and just a disaster around everything else that he did, especially on a personal level. Uh, and, you know, dragging the reputation of the United States through the mud, it was hard to focus on. But he kept his promises. But it's those promises that I have the biggest problem with. We shouldn't applaud him for keeping those promises. We should just look at it and notice that the people who love him 
and look past all of the bluster and bullshit, saw a guy that kind of did the things that they wanted. But we have to we have to have a fundamental shift in the conversation about those things themselves. And that's really what we're trying to unpack and unfuck here on UNFTR. Anyway, keep uh, keep it going with me. Uh, let's keep talking through these things. I hope that on a second listen, maybe it uh, it felt a little lighter and a little better. Uh, but if not, uh, you know, we'll keep working. On Instagram, Geek Static Dad and Starlotti checked in. It's good to hear from both of you. Emails we had uh, we had a bunch of them actually. One from Leland, who was talking about kind of unfucking the South or unfucking uh, their rural and as he says uh, hillbilly parts of the country. Ever since I found this pod listening to Best of the Left, it's become not only my favorite, but most inspiring. I want to unfuck East Tennessee. I don't know anything about East Tennessee, but I want to unfuck it with you, Leland. And I know I will have the drive with this podcast as an ally. Keep unfucking the Republic and know that hillbillies are ready to make positive change. I don't drink coffee, but know plenty who do and will gladly buy a roast for this pod. Thank you, Leland. Good luck down there in Tennessee. I know you're moving down there. And also, by the way, uh, Leland has a master's in conflict resolution. So uh, Leland dug the Trump episode. So I need you and M. Bustama to get together and work some shit out. Michael P. Michael P. was the one that sent us the suggestion for the quickie, uh, the three uh, different governors that we unfucked in the stupid white guy Olympics. Uh, So he sent in a thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you. And Celtic Apache sent in a great message that appreciated the episode so much. And honestly, probably the last push that Celtic Apache needed to start posting videos and writing some essays as well. I'll give you the same feedback that I gave to Debbie L. Go make art write, paint, lecture, do it all. Your voice is valuable and it's needed. Thank you for always checking in on the show and, uh, you know, giving us the support that we need as well. Jennifer L said, thanks for your insight. Totally wish I could get my parents to listen to your podcast. Don't we all, Jennifer? She bought some coffee and hopes to enjoy future podcasts. Fuck Milton Friedman. Alex B send uh, love to all of us. And maybe your listeners would be better served hearing the voices and stories of our first nations, not the nation state that has sought to extinguish them for the past 200 years. Uh, FMF, FBM, which is Brian Mulroney and uh, FSH, Stephen Harper. So much packed into Alex B's message. We're going to do our best to unfuck Canada along with this experiment because uh, our Canadian brothers and sisters are very, very important to this show. Uh, And we'll get to Brian and we'll get to Stephen and all of them. Uh, We had one review. Unfuckers, what's going on? Only one review. At least it was a good one. Not like that fuckhole that gave us a bad one last week, right? Oh my God. The review was from Rod Luke. Rod Luke? Rod Luke. Rod Luke. Even though you may have a problem with rude and crude language, it's really not all that bad. Take the time and listen to this podcast. You'll learn a lot in your soul, your mind, your body will thank you. And FRM, you gotta listen to know what it means. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. I wonder how many listeners actually get to this part. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Bill and distributed by Ted. Check out our book recommendations and support local bookstores by visiting bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. Email us at UNFTRpod at gmail. Visit our website and buy our fucking coffee at UNFTR.com. And join us for free, always free, at UNFTR.substack.com to get copies of our essays. I'm going to offer our pedo Twio moment. I'm going to offer our pedo Twio. I'm going to offer you our pedo Twio moment. <laughs> They're coming for me. I know. This is the end. Damn it. I'm going to get the t-shirts out. I can't believe it. As Kelton writes, 
quote, at the, the conservative playbook to stack the congressional deck with the with the, <laughs> Why do you keep having me do like robot voices? 21st century civilian conservation corp style concept. Hmm. Stephanie, Kelton calls it a 21st century civilian. Kelton calls it a 21st century civilian conservation corp style concept that puts Kelton calls it a 21st century civilian corporation. Fuck. <laughs> 